Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi, it's Fraser here. And before we get into the Spike podcast, I just wanted to tell you a bit about a very special film Spike has out this month. It's called Black Guns Matter, and it focuses on Maj Ture, a Second Amendment activist who's fighting against what he sees as the racist policies of gun control. Check it out on Spiked. Check it out on YouTube. It really is a must watch. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spike's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, Trump's UK visit, feminist outrage and transphobia in the Hooniverse. And then I heard that there were protests. I said, where are the protests? I don't see any protests. I did see a small protest today when I came from... Some of the things Donald Trump has done over the last two, three years, Londoners find uh, abhorrent and uh, offensive. I'm not saying that he shouldn't come. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have business meetings. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk to him. But the things I want to say to President Trump, I probably shouldn't say in front of the next. Donald Trump was in the UK this week and had barely landed before causing controversy. Tweeting from Air Force One, Trump called the London Mayor Sadiq Khan a stone-cold loser. This was in response to an Observer piece by Khan which likened Trump to the European dictators of the 1930s and 40s. A day later, crowds descended on London to protest against Trump's so-called fascism. Tom, why does Trump get under people's skin so much? This is something I've been trying to kind of think about this week because it's precisely that question which it can't isn't there's not been a sufficient answer to yet. Why is it that whenever Donald Trump pops up, whenever he comes to London, he seems to elicit this kind of outsized, ridiculous response from everyone from the mayor of London through to the leadership of the Labour Party, through to the kind of yummy mummies and people who look like they got lost on the way back from Glastonbury turning out into the streets for this kind of carnival of resistance. What is it about him that actually really upsets them so much? It seems obvious and you ask them and they'll tell you that he is this kind of proto-Nazi, xenophobe, um, misogynist, etc. But when you really kind of dig down into the question of policies, we've been making this argument, a lot of people have been making this argument for a long time. Say if you're concerned about the issue of immigration, mm. as we all know, and we've known for years, Obama deported somewhere in the region of 3 million people, far more people than any of his predecessors, used tear gas against people at the border. Um, if you're really that concerned with that issue, why was there never any kind of Obama baby balloon at any point? So it's definitely mm. not that. And the thing I keep coming back to, which is something I wrote on Spikes about a month ago when the um, state visit was finally given a firm date, was part of this at least has to be about just British snobbery. Now, you make that argument and people think you're talking about Trump as if he's some sort of, um, you know, sort of the earth bootstrapper. Of course, he inherited all of his wealth. He lives mm. an incredibly lavish lifestyle. Um, all of that is completely true. But that's not necessarily just how the class system works, of course. And the uh, one person I quoted was George Orwell from Road to Wigan Pier, where he talks about being brought up as a child of the lower upper middle class and being an odious little snob and being brought up to loathe as much the people below you who weren't gentlemen, but also the people above you who were hoggishly rich and came into money too soon. And it, I can't help but feel that that's part of this. He kind of just 
is crass, is offensive. So much of this is about what he is rather than actually what he does. Mm. And that, to me, has got to be at least part of the reason why there is this ridiculous, um, over-the-top, very ostentatious display of anger towards him um, when he can go to Paris and Berlin and get nowhere near this kind of response. Ella? Yeah, I think it's pretty much just become a way to signal that you are a good and decent person by saying something outrageous about Trump. I think one of the most shocking examples of that was the reaction from Emily Thornberry um, mm. in relation to the Trump state visit. I mean, not least, first of all, because she branded him a sexual predator, um, among other things, and said that if she was 30 years younger, she wouldn't want to be alone with him. And um, essentially just rolled off all these insults and um not in a way that was really politically meaningful, but just to say that he's a nasty guy and I'm a nice person and look how good I am. Um, it's also very interesting in relation to the way that the state visit has been treated because, I mean, I find it very difficult to get excited by a state visit. I think most people do, unless yeah. you're kind of a diehard monarchist yeah. or a massive fan of Trump. It's just sort of like the, the kind of pomp and the grandeur of it. It's all really boring. But it's been given so much political weight in relation to the fact that you've got people like Emily Thornberry and others and the Labour Party talking about how much, you know, this is an honour that we should not extend to Trump. And it's terrible that the Queen has to see him and we should, you know, protect the Queen. And <laughs> or the th Emily Thornberry said, the things that I have to say to Trump, I couldn't possibly say in front of the Queen. And you just think, yuck. It's just really kind of a, never mind what it says about Trump and our views on him, the kind of forelock tugging, disgusting nature of the some of our own political establishment in relation to the state visit and the use and abuse of Trump as this means to just virtue signal, um, it kind of leaves you feeling a bit dirty watching all of it. You just think, oh, so glad it's over. I think one of the, you know, one of the very fair criticisms of Trump is that he practices this kind of Twitter diplomacy that, you know, he shoots from the hip and this can have, you know, quite strange effects on, on visiting countries. But I mean, surely the same is true of people like Emily Thornberry, where basically why is she saying what she's saying? Why is she calling Donald Trump a racist and a sexual predator? It's not for some overarching foreign policy no. goal. It's for the likes and the retweets on Twitter. It's for, you know, it's to impress a certain section of society. And so you have this really, you know, bizarre thing where now, you know, Jeremy, thought, Jeremy Corbyn was shocked that he wasn't... Um, that he wasn't granted a meeting with Trump, even though he spoke at the anti-Trump protest. And Emily Thornberry was shocked that she's now had to cancel her trip to America because now they don't want to meet with her. I mean, these people want to be, you know, world leaders and Emily Thornberry wants to be the foreign secretary. You know, she could be potentially a worse foreign secretary than Boris Johnson, which isn't even, you know, which is an unthinkable thing. It, it's, it's completely bizarre that they have absolutely no thought as to, you know, what they're communicating and what effect that might have. It's, it's just all about the retweets. Also, it's just largely empty. I mean, in relation to lots of people were talking about the fact that we should oppose Trump because of the uh, restrictive uh, abortion laws and bills that have been passed or in the process of being passed in America and the kind of his status is a very much a pro-life supporter. Um, well, you know, Sadiq Khan putting out a video about, you know, how we should oppose him because of these views. Well, I mean, you don't have to go to Alabama, as we've said previously on this podcast, to find really restrictive abortion laws. It's already happening in this country mm. and in Northern Ireland. So in terms of the kind of emptiness of those kind of political statements, it looks very much like our members of our political class are being very profound and, you know, very principled, standing up to him. But actually, mm. they, they do 
a lot of the similar things at home. I thought Sadiq Khan was interesting as well. And this isn't an original point, but he really is the kind of London's middle class Trump. Like yeah. in, in this whole trip, it, it, he took it entirely out of the Trump playbook. Of course, him and Trump have this long running feud Twitter beef it's gone on for a very long time but you know a very the only time that Sadiq Khan has really been in the news that much over the past year has been over him really messing stuff up or dropping the ball it's been about spiraling knife crime and again straight out the Trump playbook things are going really bad domestically you start some sort of over the top spat and it completely Mm. distracts attention and it rallies your base that's exactly what he did in this situation (laughs) and the fact that people can't see that I think is hilarious and um of course you know Sadiq Khan basically um, suggested that Trump was a, a fascist yeah. or, you know, likening him to the dictators of the 30s and 40s. Tom, do you want to talk to us a bit about that, the way that anti-fascism has become degraded? Mm. And I think we saw that most clearly, really, in that viral clip, which has now done the rounds of a British Londoner, Trump supporter being kind of surrounded by all this group of protesters who are just shouting Nazi scum in his face mm. over and over again. It then kind of escalates. Someone throws a milkshake everyone knows what that means now and then a kind of sort of scuffle ensues and I think that really just showed how degraded anti-fascism has become and also how given the Sadiq Khan thing how mainstream it is to just completely abuse Mm. and degrade this incredibly um, mainstream term it's worth pointing out the gentleman in question if you look the longer video there is a point in which he's calling some of the protesters a guy as it so happens a white guy in dreadlocks a very kind of at central casting um he's calling them a fascist as well but we've got to recognize how you know where that kind of dynamic comes from where mm. throwing around the f word comes from and it is coming from uh everyone from you know supposed radical leftists and anti-fascists right up to the kind of liberal left it's become incredibly mainstream um and i think on the one hand it's incredibly dangerous insofar as you do rob that word of its, of its historical significance whatever trump is he's not a nazi and it's ridiculous to throw that kind of term around you end up really making a mockery of and kind of relativizing the horrors of nazism and, and fascism but at the same time it's so utterly infantile that's the other thing about it you know the anti-fascism has become the butt of jokes mm. and that's a really sad thing very proud history you know um the international volunteers in the Spanish Civil War, people, you know, clearing out the east end of London of NF types in the 70s and 80s. It is now associated with kind of scrawny students shouting at Jacob Rees-Mogg and these people down on Whitehall just screaming Nazi hysterically as someone who happens to be wearing a MAGA hat. And I think that's something which is (laughs) incredibly depressing, but at this point, something of reputation which is increasingly, you know, fairly earned. And one of the other dangers, of course, from the Trump visit, if you're if you're reading the mainstream press, is is not only will there be the rising tide of fascism, but also we could the our green and pleasant land could be <laughs> flooded with chlorinated chicken. Um, this is one of the fears um, of a US UK trade deal. I don't know if anyone has any thoughts on the on this particular scare. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's part of the, you know, we talk about this a lot on this podcast. It's part of the Brexit scaremongering, but I think also it do, it is part of what Tom was talking about, the kind of anti-American snobbery, mm. which, uh, you know, a lot of the commentating about the Trump visit has been soaked in this idea that the Americans are um, these sort of crazy mm. consumers who just don't have any respect for the planet or for standards. And they're disgusting. They eat chlorinated chicken. You know, how could we bear, to have that over here i mean a as if our own sort of way of processing food is sort of like some kind of people have this vision that is like (laughs) clean eating and miraculous you know creating food killing animals is a dirty business and if it works in the way that americans uh, do it and it seems to do then what's the problem but i think you always have to look behind the like scientific facts of this which Mm. people are still debating whether or not this is a problem or not uh 
what it really is, it's a kind of aversion to both Brexit and just the kind of the very old snobbery against Americans, which is sort of never gets challenged. And even on the facts, I mean, the chlorinated chicken thing, it's Chris Snowden, um, friend of the show, also on our last Orders podcast, tweeted this, that the chlorinated chicken thing has become to remain what bendy bananas was to leave us. You know, yeah. this kind of completely confected, made up issue, which is just routinely tried out and out. And the only thing it really proves is how, you know, ignorant these people are whenever they make this argument. The European Union's own food standards authority said it was completely fine to eat and they ruled that in 2005 the reason it's not allowed into the eu is because of protectionism you know yeah. and even in this country we wash um, you know you pick up a salad bag from a supermarket that's washed in chlorine so it's completely confected it definitely does express this kind of anti-americanism but again it i think it just shows that um given how much this has been repeated by everyone from, you know, Remain campaigners who were showing up in Trafalgar Square dressed as chickens yeah. um, through to Jeremy Corbyn pumping it out as, again, this kind of anti-American, anti-capitalist message, just, you know, how much they are relying on kind of spin and ludicrous stories as much as they accuse our side of the aisle of being. Well, exactly. And the other the other great fear, of course, is that the NHS, our beloved National Health Service, will be put on the table in any trade deal. And and I've, you know, I tried to sort of debunk this um this week in, in, in Spiked. And, you know, it's it's just this ridiculous assertion that via a trade deal, some somehow, you know, the big bad Donald Trump is gonna force the privatization of um, the National Health Service. But of course anyone who's been following the National Health Service for the last over the last 10, 20 years will know that it's been British governments that have been already privatizing the National Health Service. There's mm. huge amounts of, you know, healthcare that is done by private firms. It's certainly not going to be an imposition from the United States. And I think what what is really happening is that there is just a complete misunderstanding of um, a deliberate, actually, misunderstanding of the way trade deals work. You know, it will be entirely possible, yes, that the jobs in the NHS that are currently done by you know British and European capitalists may be may also be competed for by big bad American capitalists. But, you know, why is there this assumption that American providers are somehow worse or that American health companies are somehow more greedy and more <laughs> evil than their British capitalist cousins? I mean, it's just completely perverse. <laughs> there are capitalists for our there NHS. Are, yeah, like, like Richard Branson, our beloved Richard Branson, who, you know, earns billions out of um, our beloved NHS. But, you know. Trump coming over reveals a lot about what we already knew about the current state of politics in terms of its shallow nature um that we can you know that great example that you can forget about the problems that the long-standing problems we have with our own healthcare system just because you can point the finger and say but god isn't it so terrible over in america we don't mm. want that i mean trump is not a politician that i or anyone around this table subscribe to we want to see him defeated in an upcoming election um, there's some very big issues with his political viewpoints as there is with our own uh, domestic politics here in Britain but the the whole spectacle of the Trump visit has just shown how you know absolutely incapable we are of actually dealing with serious politics the main opposition to him you have is a bunch of nutters going out on the streets throwing milkshakes at each other and essentially having a good time and dressing <laughs> yeah, up I mean yeah. it's really embarrassing and it's important to also note that the the number of protesters were much less than the last time that he came over here so you know in in general people aren't that excited by the state visit other than the ones who want to get excited by him who aren't giving forward any kind of positive political opposition to him mm. so the whole thing is just a bit depressing I have to say
You're listening to The Spike Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you get this podcast on iTunes, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps new listeners find the show. Dominic Raab, one of the dozens of contenders for the Tory leadership, has been pulled up over an old column in which he criticised feminism. Writing in Politics Home in 2011, he said that feminists were now among the most obnoxious bigots for not recognising that from cradle to the grave, men are getting a raw deal. He's since clarified that while he would not call himself a feminist, he does believe in equality and meritocracy. Ella, do we all have to call ourselves feminists these days? If you want to be accepted in polite society, it's probably advisable that you do. <laughs> because the minute that you disown the F word, um, you essentially suck like a black stain on your uh, political career and you're not going to get the places that you want to go. I mean, in fact, Dominic Raab's article that he wrote in 2011, whilst being a, a a bit OTT, you mm. know, throwing around the word bigger mm. and um, actually, you know, putting forward quite a wrong-headed viewpoint in relation to men being the victims yeah. and sort of going down, not exactly the MRA route, but kind of an, a men's rights activist's light argument it was. Uh, but it had some quite interesting points in relation to challenging the uh, status of the gender pay gap reporting, about raising questions about, you know, this obsession with gender, you know, bar the headline of the bigots. Mm. Uh, it was... It was a relatively interesting article you could take on, and it was dragged up um, against him and used as this, you know, this thing that he said that was so utterly, utterly terrible. I mean, nowhere in that article uh, or anywhere else has he said women need to be chained to the kitchen sink and yeah. you know mm. making sandwiches for their husbands. Uh, he's as with lots of people who have denounced the feminist tag, he's been quite explicit in the fact that he does believe in equality of the sexes. Um, so. The problem with feminism today, I think, and the reason why, let's remember, as we've said previously on this podcast, lots of women, the majority of mm. women do mm. not subscribe to it. I mean, polls show that about 30% in around 2017, 2018 subscribed to it. Back in 2016, that was before hashtag Me Too um, kicked off the Fawcett Society, yeah. the feminist organisation, found that only 7% of women subscribe to feminists. So, I mean, we most of us are like Dominic Raab, don't really like it, think it's going kind of down a bit of an extreme route in terms of continuously portraying women as victims for everything um what's the problem i mean it it just reveals how much of an elitist and professional set uh, contemporary feminists are they are the kind of the movers and shakers in society the journalists the mm. commentators the politicians who want to use feminism as a means to uh, give their identities a bit more of a shine yeah what it means for the average woman out on the street is nothing Tom. I'm kind of struck by there's kind of two contradictory things going on at the same time as well, because on the one hand, as Ella writes in a piece on Spike this week, it has become like a religious test. Are mm. you a feminist? That's your ticket into public life. There was this very strange period in which all pop stars were being asked this question, particularly female pop stars. That's a funny yeah. thing. It's not men really getting the heat for this. It's often um, women. There was a period of time when every interview Beyonce did, she was asked if she was a feminist because she'd <laughs> once kind of given a fudge, not quite answer. And so it just became, went on and on and on until she put that song Flawless out with the quote from the TED talk about why we should all be feminists in it. 
um, performed at the VMAs in 2014 with the word feminist behind her and then all was forgiven. So you've got this kind of very strange dynamic where people are constantly um, demanding that people in public life subscribe to feminism. And then at the same time, you also have this um, weird thing going on in parallel, which is people telling people they're feminists when they're not. So, you know, talking about, as Ella talks about, the fact that most women in the UK and America don't identify as feminists. And people say, well, if you agree with these points, then you are a feminist. Mm. And my favourite example, I think she was actually talking about men here, but um, Emma Watson who had just recently been named UN Women's Goodwill Ambassador in 2015, she was doing this Q&A and she said, if you stand for equality, then you're a feminist. Sorry to tell you, you're a feminist. (laughs) So there is this kind of slight weird thing going on where on the one hand, you know, you must abide by this idea and this set of principles, but at the same time, it's been so defined down, you know, Mm. so turned into something which can apparently both include Julie Bindle and Beyonce. So kind of just turned into this very vague um, brand that almost anyone can jump on board of it. And I think the way in which you see the marriage of feminism and celebrity in particular i think it says less about how popular it is or how popular it might be but how thin and kind of meaningless it's because it's a pose rather than a set of positions it feels like yeah i think that's right I, i'm it's making me think of the this is what a feminist looks like t-shirt that was <laughs> worn by by all of the you know all of the party leaders several years ago apart from apart from david cameron and then it was discovered that um actually the t-shirt was being you know stitched up by women in the developing world for absolutely absolute pittance yeah that i mean that happened again quite recently <laughs> with holly willoughby and the members of the spice girls wearing girl power t-shirts mm. that were being produced by bangladeshi women who had tried to go on strike and had been quashed and were being paid pennies so i mean I, you know as that kind of side of the argument um is a little bit irritating but it does show that actually the in terms of western feminism uh it really isn't political uh, in any sense yeah. even though it's really sort of you know they they march and uh parliament holds meetings mm. about feminism and this gets put forward at this very sort of strident radical thing in fact if you look at what it actually stands for i mean the, the headline topics of feminism today are for example period poverty which is a kind of a bizarre paternalistic approach to working class women and their uh, yeah, access to sanitary pads it's just mm. a really strange thing the obsession with period poverty fgm which is you know not only sort of encourages racial uh, profiling in the UK but there's also a massive panic on the behalf of western white women um and and being nice to women in general that's yeah. the other kind of headline campaign yeah. just be nice to women be be softer be more feminine um saying to men you know this is why i've, I've wrote my article i found it so infinitely weird this desire for men to become feminists <laughs> creepiest in the world. it's really it's creepy because the main narrative behind contemporary feminism is for men to sit down shut up you know lean out so women can lean in um and anyone who's going to engage in that kind of self-deprecating you know self flagellation type of politics is just surely making yourself into a doormat it's sort of kind of really gross and i don't want to be around any guy that has that little self-respect well i'll I'll take a feminist off my tinder profile (laughs) yeah well i mean there is actually a big list there's a website you can go to to see the male feminists of tinder is quite interesting but let's (laughs) let's not forget that you know uh, there's a lot of criticism and i have a lot of criticism for feminism of the past Mm. um it's not like you know in the 60s and 70s Mm. everything was great but it did used to be radical yeah and it did used to stand for some radical things. And there are still some things, some radical demands that women need to make in 2019, whether that be around abortion rights or childcare, or even in some cases, uh, you know, uh, 
pay and wages mm. and you know access to society's resources we could be making some big and radical arguments for women's liberation but what needs to happen i think is to stop fussing around this question of feminism which essentially has just become like a designer label you, yeah. know, you wear it if you're in the right set and i think that we still have this kind of slight problem with the fact that it's we have this confusing kind of language around it because again I wouldn't call myself a feminist obviously but uh, I don't have necessarily a problem with it if people are using it as just another word for women's liberation politics mm. but that's not what people are doing you know yeah. there is nothing to do with liberation whatsoever about feminism today it's synonymous largely speaking with censorship the idea that you need to censor you know adverts twitter whatever it is to protect women's self-esteem because they're so fragile it's increasingly obsessed with um effectively acknowledging and f- and all kind of reckoning with the fact that women are victims in almost all circumstances, which is the entire opposite of a liberationary politics about removing barriers and um, freedom and all the rest of it. And also it's, as with so many other areas of identity politics, it's really narcissistic because the campaigns are so much about how I'm treated or how mm. I'm spoken about or how this, it often provides a lot of license to often very prom- prominent and privileged people to talk about themselves, yeah. <laughs> which is why it plays really well in Teen Vogue, which is why, you know, celebrities and pop stars can get on board with it. Um, and which is why there are, it's attractive to a lot of um, women of very privileged backgrounds who now have a means through which to say people should feel sorry for them. I mean, that without being too crass about it, the idea that um, feminism has anything to do with women's liberation really anymore certainly not in its mainstream form it doesn't you're listening to the spike podcast spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls all of our content is free we rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing For those of you who already donate to Spikes, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to all of us. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Gareth Roberts, an award-winning Doctor Who writer, has been sacked by BBC Books for his views on trans issues, Roberts was due to contribute to an upcoming Doctor Who anthology, but a fellow contributor objected to his presence and complained to the publisher. She later celebrated his sacking by tweeting that transphobic views have no place in the Hooniverse, both in and outside the stories. Tom, do you want to tell us a bit more about this case? Yeah, so it's a really striking case. So Gareth Roberts, as you were saying, is this Doctor Who writer. He's written six episodes of the kind of revived series, numerous kind of TV and print spin-offs. And so he was writing as part of this new collection. He'd actually written it. It had already been commissioned and sent in and I imagine kind of um, rubber stamped. But then this campaign on social media started to kick off, led, Mm. as you say, by this other contributor who is, um, from what I read in Tim Dawson's great um, write-up of this in Spike this week, is a far more um, lesser-known author, (laughs) it has to say, and whose latest book apparently is about, quote, dragons and toxic masculinity. So it tells you something <laughs> about where she's coming from in relation to all this stuff. Um, and very quickly they caved. And what mm. I think was really striking about it was the quote that they gave um, Tim for his piece, which says that um, comments made by the author on social media using offensive language about the transgender community have caused upset to Doctor Who fans and conflict with our values as a publisher. So what are those values exactly, I think, yeah. is the question. So Gareth Roberts... Um, he's a gay man, incidentally. He's used the word trannies once, at mm. least, on Twitter, um, which he claims is somewhat of a generational thing, which is one point. Also, as he spells out in this Medium post, which is also a kind of really statement about it, he just says that he just doesn't happen to believe that um, you can change your biological sex. He doesn't think women's spaces 
um, should be rearranged on the basis of men being able to become women, etc. And he doesn't think anyone's views should be imposed upon him. Um, and it's worth pointing out that whatever the supposed values of Ebury Publishing are, that is the mainstream view. Yeah. And what's one of the things that I think it's important to take away from this story is the fact that someone has effectively been sacked for expressing a view which had nothing to do with the work he was doing. This was not a transgender story. This was not touching any of these issues whatsoever. Um, for expressing a view that the majority of people in this country hold. And I think that's taken us down a pretty dangerous route and yet at the same time felt so familiar as well. Well, yeah, it, it felt familiar because there have been so many cases like this. I mean, actually, some even more worrying cases where the police have been involved with people expressing a view that is critical of, you know, transgender ideology that basically states that there is a difference between men and women. I mean, we talked about on the podcast before um, the man who, you know, tweeted a sort of anti-trans um, limerick and who had a phone call from the police. You know, there was an old age, old age pensioner, feminist blogger who um, had a visit from the police. There have even been people put in cells overnight for, you know, basically criticising transgender ideology. Yeah, I mean, usually these clampdowns um, come from on high. So, you know, you yeah. have like blasphemy laws, which means mm. that the society not that hasn't accepted, but is enforced that you're not allowed to say certain things. This is a, a type of censorship that's really just come, a, come out of thin air. I yeah. mean, in the last decade, only we sort of start to see the really ramping up of clampdowns on this and uh, n you know not necessarily a politician has passed a law to say that it's illegal to say these things and yet people mm. are being censored for it i mean the the interesting thing if i can use the word interesting um, about the case of gareth roberts um is is that he's gay himself and there's a there's a tension within um the lgbt community in which um gay men who are drag artists who have been drag artists for decades are now being accused of transphobia for mm. uh dressing up like women because there it's uh the trans community or some members of the trans community who are sort of militant campaigners argue that uh this is essentially ridiculing the experience of a trans person and similarly I mean, the reason why he was pinned for using the word trannies is because that's meant to be transphobic even though it's something that members of the lgbt community have used to self-identify themselves with for years so mm. it's like a complete rewriting of language actually in a in a way that is really quite mm. frightening well he gives the example of um queer and the way that you know he and his friends used to call themselves queer and now you know queer has actually become an accepted kind of umbrella term for LGBT mm. yeah. issues. I mean, the other aspect of this that's interesting is because that we're dealing in the realms of fiction, you know, the mm. universe. <laughs> I'm not a fan of Doctor Who, but I can't imagine that it would matter massively to a storyline whether or not a uh, one of the writers had a certain political viewpoint mm. or personal viewpoint. And we've seen this in different cases in relation to differentiating between artists and their work, you know, mm. whether a writer's personality should affect the way the kind of the, the pieces that they put forward. Um, and that, that distinction's just completely gone out here in relation yeah. to that. There's nothing even to prove that the story that, that Gareth wrote had anything to do with this political dispute, <laughs> exactly. had anything to do with gender. Um, and even if it did, I mean, the idea is that you can't differentiate, you can't hold a personal viewpoint and it is a very personal viewpoint. And the idea that you would enforce a, the kind of clampdown on that very personal thing of what you believe in, especially in relation to as a member of that LGBT community is a bit mad. It is really strange. And I think what, one of the things that's quite striking about it is that fact that this was a privately held view, which he expressed in public, but everyone's entitled to express their opinion. And it had 
nothing to do with the work that he was doing because the upshot of all of this is that he effectively won't be allowed to work. Mm. In, this is an area in which it seems like he's really made his name. It's probably something which he's quite rely on for income. And because of a view he happens to hold um, completely separate to his professional life, he's not allowed to work now. I mean, you know, you don't want to get too over the top about this, but you do start thinking about the kind of Hollywood blacklist and McCarthyism. You know, yeah. is, it, is this going to be the kind of litmus test for anyone who wants to work in a nice, modern, you know, publishing business? Are you or have you ever been a transphobe? You know, yeah. that is really, really quite strange, really, really quite um, sinister. And again, I think particularly on the um, trans issue, because it does in so many ways and the kind of claims that are surrounding it, you know, trans are trans women women and can you change your biological sex and all the rest of it, is the fact that it's increasingly going to make people, particularly work in certain sectors, just have to either completely shut up or say things that they know to be false mm. or they feel very strongly to be false in order to just operate like a normal human being. That's a really, really unhealthy society. So how, however much people want to split hairs on this question, how much it might have upset the readers, I don't think any most of them would ever have known, um, how much it might make the other contributors feel uncomfortable, um, that's the sort of world that we're edging towards if these things carry on. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, for more great Spike content or to make a donation, just visit spikes-online.com. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh, oh.